This is Bill Polian, and you're listening to the Eye Test for Two. podcast of December. Yeah, the first one of December. Must mean that Christmas is coming up. Um, I'm Clark Judge, along with Ira Kaufman. We're both Hall of Fame voters, and we're joined as we are each week by Ian Glendon, our producer. And before I get into what's coming up today, uh, well, I guess I will immediately, um, we're going to be talking to Jimmy Giles, former tight end. Ira, you probably covered him at Tampa, right? I did. Yeah, Absolutely well, he was did. recently um, to the College Football Hall of Fame, along with five others, and congratulations to him. He'll join us later. But in this segment, um, soon we'll be joined by historian John Turney, a pro football journal who uh, is informative, uh, really good uh, and knowledgeable historian on the game and can help us with the 25 semifinals for the Hall of Fame class of 2021. We talked about that last week, but we're going to talk more about it this week. But before we get into that, I just want to ask you guys quickly. I, I, we, last week was the Thanksgiving broadcast. How was your Thanksgiving? Ira, Sage, good Thanksgiving. Uh, it was outstanding. Three-hour drive to Palm Coast. Uh, our son uh, surprised us. We didn't expect him, and he walked through the door, and tears from my wife, Clark. Tears. <laughs> I haven't seen that since my wedding night. I haven't seen it since the wedding night. I thought you told me you get tears from your wife every time you walk in the front door home from work. <laughs> How about, How about you, you Ian? Ian? Uh, <clears throat> it was good. It was good. It was quiet, relaxing, and uh, I guess the football was pretty entertaining. It was? Not, yeah. not if you're a Lions fan, yeah. Ian. Not if you're a Lions fan. It, it, was, tra- was, it was tradition, though. It was tradition. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was going to say, uh, we did nothing. Uh, we stayed at home at a quiet time, but we did nothing, which is kind of what the Lions and the Cowboys did, right? They did nothing. Hey, Clark, um, okay. Clark uh, as we're taping this, Clark, it's 50 degrees in Tampa. People, there's panic in the streets. Panic in the streets. They can't it's handle warmer it. warmer in Connecticut right now. It's 57 here. You got to move up here. Get the warm, balmy climbs of Connecticut, guys. Get out of there. <laughs> um, hey, I just noticed this week, notice it every year, but I would guess you guys probably didn't. Merriam-Webster Dictionary announced their word of the year for 2020. So I'm going to ask each of you, what do you think that word was, is, or should be? Ira, I'll start with you. I think it's got to be COVID, uh, unfortunately. It's the story of the year. It's the man of the year. Um, and, and it's affecting everything we do. And until the vaccine's widely distributed, it, it is the story of, of our year. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I, I, would, I would have to say that or... I don't know. Stop the count. <laughs> Does that count as one word? <laughs> no. <laughs> Last time I checked, it was three. <laughs> but you both are close. You're very warm. The word is pandemic. And it ah. makes sense because uh, the Webster, Merriam-Webster Dictionary said it was the most researched word in 2020. And of course, we all know what's going on nationally, uh, worldwide, and now in the NFL. And that's why I wanted to segue into the NFL from that very word. Uh, what's going on right now, uh, Ira, Ian, as you noticed, um, we've got a game. I'm talking about the Ravens and the Steelers, which has been postponed three times. They're going to play right now, we think, Wednesday afternoon. I don't know. As I said, it's been postponed three times. But I want to talk about what's going on generally and that specifically. Generally, we have 43 players last week who tested positive, including people like Larry Fitzgerald, DeForest Buckner, Jonathan Taylor, um, Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson's one of them. I think James Conner from Pittsburgh tested positive. But we've got that going on. But specifically, we have two games that are of interest to me. One, the Denver Broncos game. We know what happened there. Quarterbacks were exposed to COVID and they were declared ineligible. So the Broncos played that game without a quarterback with predictable results. But they did ask, could we have it postponed until Monday? The NFL said no. They also asked, which I thought was interesting, could we have a non-roster player 
a, an assistant coach play quarterback, which I think would have been pretty interesting. They you know, but they told the Ravens and the Steelers, we're going to postpone this three times and the Ravens were the source of the outbreak. Uh, Ira, does that strike you as unusual? I mean, w- what's going on here? And is it, did, what's a coherent plan? Because it just seems like we're playing whack-a-mole with these games with the NFL. You know, Clark, everybody says the NFL is a week-to-week league. It's it is, now a right. day-to-day league. Yeah, it's that's a right. day-to-day league. Uh, they're trying to soldier on, Clark, and I'm not one of these people that say the NFL, uh, you know, is, is really botching this and they've done a terrible job. I'm not one of those people. They're trying to get this thing done. They don't want to use the 18th week. They want to keep the playoffs as scheduled. They want to keep the Super Bowl February 7th. I don't know if they can, Clark, but they're trying. As far as the Broncos are concerned, Ian, it sounds like it was inconsistent, but it's the Broncos. And if it was the Chiefs with Mahomes, that you know darn well, Ian, that game would have been pushed back a day or two, whatever it took. Amen. No, I, I agree. And uh, to that point, I, I do think uh, at, at this point, I, I know the NFL just wants to get this season through. And if they were consistent and just played this Ravens-Steelers game, you know, I don't think it would be an issue. But I do think some feel that there is some favoritism being being shown given – the Ravens situation versus the Broncos, the Patriots, and some other teams that have had to deal with the Raiders a couple weeks ago. So um, consistency, but that's never been the NFL's thing. So, Yeah, no, I think Broncos mentioned sounds punitive to them, and it does to me as well, because Denver didn't have any previous history here. Vic Fangio is one of the coaches who hadn't been wearing a mask and John Gruden, of course, had been one of those, Pete Carroll. So those guys had been penalized, but then the Raiders were penalized again and again. They were recidivists. They kept repeating the, this offense, and and the Broncos didn't, and I don't think the Ravens have either. But I, I just don't understand why you make the Broncos play when Roger Goodell has always been about, quote-unquote, the integrity of the game. Well, where is the integrity of the game when you're playing a game without a quarterback? They didn't have a ghost of a chance of winning that ball game. And I think anyone who had a ticket, and I, I don't – think anyone was in the stands at that point i think denver shut down that stadium i don't know but um but if you did go there you go what am i watching here this is a joke i mean it's a pickup football game from one side so it really struck me Ari, that it, it hit at the integrity of the game there's no question and clark the one team you know and i think it's a stretch it's a stretch the team that might have a little grievance about that uh, is the tampa bay bucks because they still think they can win the division maybe denver could have upset uh, New Orleans have never had a quarterback. Unlikely, Clark. Unlikely. But uh, other teams are affected by these. Yeah, just to let our listeners know, yes, Ira is in Tampa. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> um, but so Bridget let me ask Tampa. you this. Tampa. Yeah. Let me Bridget. ask you guys, uh, what do you think the league should have done? And are we going to uh, a bubble down the road, either for the playoffs or for maybe the last month of the season? Ira? I think a bubble, I think a bubble makes sense for the postseason. I do. Uh, is it going to be easy to work out the logistics? No, but, uh, you know, the NFL's got uh, five weeks to figure this thing out. There's ways to do it, Clark. I know this could be an expanded playoff field, whatever it is, Clark. I think they need to be in a bubble because, Clark, if Mahomes, if Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers comes down with COVID, uh, there's going to be a problem in January. Yeah, right. Ian? Yeah, I, I, I agree with the bubble. Um, I, I think they should have worked in more flexibility in the schedule beforehand, uh, uh, planned for a couple breaks throughout the season, and I think uh, you could have eliminated a lot of these problems you're having now. But at this point, you they're just you got to keep doing what you're doing and, and play these games and get them through. Last question for you, Ira. Tampa Bay Super Bowl, February 7th. Is that still on track, do you think, or do you still have the feeling it's going to be pushed back? Uh my sources, Clark, my sources tell me that uh, it's still on track, but Tampa it will be super flexible if it's pushed back one week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it takes, that game's going to be at Ray J. Okay. Well, um, moving on from there, let's go back to what we were talking about last week, which is in front of us, Ira, and that's the Hall of Fame's 25 semifinalists. Now, the, the Hall announced those a week ago today. We spoke about them a week ago today, and we went over them. There were nine on offense, 15 on defense, and one special teams player. And now, Ira, as you know, we get to vote on them. We have to vote 
this month and then the results will be announced in early January. But before we do, I wanna get somebody else in here to talk about it. And that's John Turney, who's an historian, a good friend of mine. He's with Pro Football Journal and he's a source for many Hall of Fame voters simply because he knows just about everything that's going on with the league and with its history. John, are you on the line? I am. Good to hear your voice. Um, I know you looked at the Hall of Fame's 25 semifinalists a week ago and the list that's in front of you now. What's your takeaway from this list? Well, I think it's obviously an excellent list. There's nobody on it that would, if they did get in, would would lower the bar uh, for the Hall of Fame. I think everybody is generally worthy. There might be a couple you could nitpick with and said, oh, this guy's not worthy. But I, I think they it's really a solid list, as solid as I've seen in, in the past you know, 15 years, I would say. Ira? You know, John, there's one guy, uh, Tampa-related, that Buck fans, they just can't figure out why this guy can't clear this hurdle from 25 to 15. That's Rondé Barber, John. Uh, you could argue that Rondé, um, you know, in some ways is more worthy of John Lynch. I mean, you could make a credible argument, John. Uh, Rondé Barber's a walking stat. His durability is historic. He's made the biggest play in franchise history. John, uh, should Rondé Barber make the final 15? Well, I think so. I, I, I think he's got some nuggets that I think the voters should pay attention to. First of all, he's got 12 defensive touchdowns and I believe a special teams touchdown. Those are big plays. Uh, eight returned interceptions, four fumble recoveries. Not only that, uh, we at Pro Football Journal have a unique stat. It's called run and pass stuff. Tackles behind the line of scrimmage that are either a run or a pass. And as you know, playing the generally that strong side, there were a couple of years he went over to the right side due to injuries, but he was making plays on sweeps for a yard or two loss. Now that's a big play. And also on a pass, maybe a tunnel screen or something like that. He has 63 and a half run or pass stuffs. Warren Sapp had 66 and a half, I believe. He had almost as many plays behind the line of scrimmage as Warren Sapp. Now that does not include sacks. Uh, Warren Sapp had over 90, but Rondé Barber as a cornerback had 28 sacks. So you have 90 plays behind the line of scrimmage. No cornerback in the history of the game has, that, has as many or even close as, as, as Rodney Barber. Then you throw in the interceptions. Then you throw in, as I said, the de defensive scores. You mentioned the signature plays that help them win a title. So, yes, I think he's definitely somebody who should be in the room. Now, people might say oh yeah he was a cover two corner a zone corner not a man-to-man -man corner well that may be fine and dandy but have the discussion where he has that chance to advance to the top 10 and, and maybe get in john and we're speaking to historian john turney of pro football journal but john what was your biggest surprise of this group and maybe your biggest disappointment well, the biggest disappointment, I would say, is somebody, another cornerback. Albert Lewis is, was the complete cornerback. Uh, he's running out of time. I believe his last year was 1998. He had over 200 passes deflected. He was somebody who, who also could uh, blitz in a, in a slot situation. He didn't have as many sacks as Rondé, but it was a little bit different defense, and he was the classic man-to-man -man corner. He could play zone as well. But uh, in addition, he was somebody who was one of the top, I would say, uh, well, without doubt, one of the top three or four uh, kick blockers of all time and the absolute best punt blocker ever. And he won games and helped get the Chiefs to the playoffs because of his punt blocking prowess. He was 6'3" had extremely long arms, and he's never gotten a sniff of the final 25, much less the, the, the top 15. So that was my biggest disappointment. And there's other guys that maybe deserve a look that have never even been in the discussion. We talk a lot about Aaron Donald and his prowess, and, and he's a unique specimen. 
there was a guy in the early 90s that was a five or six time all pro went to seven pro bowls as a defensive tackle was quick off the ball and i'm not saying michael dean perry was as good as aaron donald but if you look at his numbers again that stuff statistic he was getting 10 11 14 stuffs a season plus many times was getting double digits and sacks so his first six seven eight years were very close to Aaron Donald type numbers except for that one year where Aaron Donald got the 20 sacks that was off the charts so there was another disappointment so there's two I would give you hey Clark um this is called the eye test for two so I want to ask John about a guy who doesn't have great numbers but I don't know I think he might pass the eye test I think he was just a great football player John Heinz Ward he didn't make, you know, a thousand catches, but the ones he made were big. The guy helped you in so many ways. I, I just thought, you know, he's a winner, John. And and I don't think everybody has to be judged purely by the stats. Well, I would agree with that. That's why I really do. And, and Clark and other voters have known this since I've been kind of trying to push this guy or that guy over the past 20 years. That's why I like to push for the linemen and the defensive linemen and linebackers and DBs because they have the harder uh, harder road to hoe, if you will. And and if I were to, to, to really champion a wide receiver, it would be somebody like a Heinz Ward who was a tough football player, a hard, a hard hitter, a guy who was running through the middle and also a, a tremendous blocker. So I would agree with you. He deserves – I certainly like him better. Would love to have a guy like him on my team than maybe some of the than two of the wide receivers that that are on the final twenty-five. I don't want to name names because it's really not right. my style to denigrate somebody. But I I would love to see Hines Ward on the final fifteen rather than two second bananas. Let's call them that are that get a lot of publicity now that the top guys from their teams got in. I'm sure John, you guys know who I'm talking about, but I, I don't need I to do. name names. We yeah, do. I do. Um, John, who would you have included on this list who did not make it? Well, as, as I mentioned, there was um, Albert Lewis and also Michael Dean Perry. But, you know, you know, maybe a Lance Briggs deserves a look. He had over 90 stuffs and was also a good cover guy and got to a Super Bowl. Um, you know, maybe somebody like that was some, is something that deserves a look. Um, a lot of my guys that I really like have, have faded into the seniors swamp. So, you know, off the top of my head, those two were, were probably the ones that I would like to feature most. John, Terry what about, what about, oh, about Leslie O'Neill? He never gets any, any love. And, and Ira Kaufman and I have both talked about what's wrong with this guy. He had 132 and a half sacks as many as LT and he never gets a sniff. He's been a semifinalist once and he's still, a modern era candidate. Yeah, I think he's another guy that would pass the eye test. I think he lacks the honors, and I think sometimes maybe some of the voters just kind of look and see that he was never a consensus or a first-team All-Pro. Uh, he went to, I think, plenty of Pro Bowls, but he never really reached the upper, upper echelon. The reason for that is the guys that were ahead of him were, were named Reggie White and Bruce Smith. They were kind of hogging up all those consensus All-Pros, and then if those two maybe had a down year, maybe a Richard Dent or um, Chris Dolman would, would suck up the rest of the oxygen in the room. <laughs> I do know this. There was never a better technician at right defensive end as a pass rusher that had all the moves and was using a lot of um, hand techniques in a tremendous way like they do now. The hand swipe, knocking the, the offensive lineman's hands off them better than Leslie O'Neill. He was really ahead of his time. Another guy that I would think of that maybe deserves a look that would be a star these days would, was Carnell Lake. Here's a guy that was a linebacker coming out of college, ran a 4-4, was a safety at first, but then if somebody got hurt, he could play cornerback. And as you guys know, safeties are really a, a joker position these days. They, they come down and they play that will position. Um, in, in the defenses, when, when teams are going to nickel or dime, they have to play the slot, they will blitz, they will cover uh, a back out of the backfield, or they'll go back and sometimes have to play middle of the field or half-field coverage. Uh, Carnell Lake could have done any of those things, just like uh, Leroy Butler could do. 
Uh, Adrian Wilson was another guy that would have been an interesting player these days. I think you would all agree with those. Yeah. Uh, John, how do you evaluate a Steve Tasker, John? Well, I, I might be a little controversial on him because I've done quite a study on those guys. Steve Tasker did it all you know, on special teams. He, if there's ever a special teams guy to go in, he would be it. But he was, remember, he was fortunate enough to play at a time when there were honors for a special teams player. Uh, he went to seven Pro Bowls, was all pro, I think, five times. But there were special teams players who made as many plays as he did in terms of, and these are the, the statistics that I have tracked uh, back into the 70s. Tackles, blocked kicks, forced fumbles, and fumble recoveries. There was a guy for the Rams named Ivory Sully who actually had one more big play in terms of block kicks, punts, and he doesn't get any ink because he didn't go to any Pro Bowls because you couldn't go to a Pro Bowl through most of his career. So, yes, you have to give the nod to Steve Tasker, but he was not head and shoulders above other players as much as the, as the honors the Pro Bowls would suggest. Uh, there was other Ron Wolfley. There was guys that were uh, Hank Bauer that really were just as good as, as Steve Tasker, but they just don't get the ink. So I think there needs to be more study, to be honest. I think uh, five or six guys need to be placed in front of all the voters, and they say, okay, is Tasker really the first guy that should go in, or did he benefit from the all-pro uh, structure that was placed right when he was coming of age, if that makes sense. John, I've got one last one for you. Do you have any advice for Ira trying to get John Lynch into the Football Hall of Fame this year? He tries year after year after year. John's come close, been a top 10 finalist. He was a top 10 finalist the last time we met. But he, I think, will be a finalist again this year. Some people think he's a favorite. Ira knows better. He's gone into that room hearing that he's a favorite. How does he push him across the threshold? Well, I, that, that, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to give Ira advice. I mean, you guys have the toughest job there is because it is a, it's a tight race. There's only five modern slots each year. I think the thing that, um, that John has that uh, the other safeties don't have is he's the last of the hard-hitting safeties. He had uh, over 40 run stuff, so uh, even though he was um, – you know, sometimes played a, a lot of middle of the field safety. He was that a uh, box safety, but he was the last that we'll ever see of the guys that made his bones. You know, knocking people out. The game has changed so much that we'll never see another one like him. And he did it fairly. He did it squarely. It was well within the rules. He wasn't a dirty player, but. He's the last, he was the last of a dying breed. And I think that was the, that would be the selling point to me. Right, I'm, bringing, I'm bringing John into the room with me, Clark. John's coming <laughs> in. You, you better bring, that's what I was going to say, bring John Turney in and give him an assist if uh, John Lynch makes it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That was great, John. Thanks so much. Uh, really pleasure talking to you and, and great to hear your voice again. Thanks, John. Anytime. Thanks. Bye. That was John Turney of Pro Football Journal. We're going to take a break right here. When we return, we're going to talk to former tight end Jimmy Giles, who I think is a good friend of Ira Kaufman's, but he's also now a member of the Black College Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Eye Test for Two on FullPressRadio.com. Coordinator leaning on his crutches. Open leg suffered in the car accident. Deberg. Giles. Giles will score. Two weeks ago, the Black College Football Hall of Fame announced its six inductees for the class of 2021. With defensive lineman Coy Bacon, punter Greg Coleman, tackle Winston Hill, who was also a member of the Centennial Class Pro Football Hall of Fame of 2020, defensive back Roynell Young, coach Willard Bailey, and our next guest, tight end Jimmy Giles. Now, Jimmy was a star tight end for Alcorn State University, who went on to a productive and long career in the NFL that included four Pro Bowl selections and a long friendship, I think, with Ira Kaufman when he was in Tampa Bay. Anyway, now, well, now Jimmy's with us. And Jimmy, thank you so much. And secondly, congratulations 
on making the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Hey, listen, guys, I really appreciate it and having me on uh, I Test for Two. It's a great honor to have an opportunity to be here. Um, it was a great opportunity and privilege to be selected to the Black College Football Hall of Fame and myself included and my family, we're very proud to have been selected. Well, I'm Jeremy, glad yeah. you mentioned that, that because my first question was going to be, what was your immediate reaction when you got the phone call? And I don't know if that's how it's done, but with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you get a phone call from David Baker. But when you first found out, what was your immediate reaction? My first reaction, really, I said, don't go in an hour. You're behind the time. I'm waiting on the other one. <laughs> hey, you're halfway there. I said, hey, one down and one down and one to go, and I'm waiting on Ira. <laughs> Jimmy, how does this honor uh, how does this honor stack up, Jimmy? Your name your name's on uh, on the facade of Raymond James Stadium. You know, going to be there forever, uh, and that's quite an honor. How does this one stack up, Jimmy? Well, Ira, this one is it's pretty unique because first of all, you would have to have gone to a black college uh, to have the opportunity to be selected. And, you know, when you play in the black college football, there's some things you, you really have to persevere because you don't have the great facilities like the other guys have, but you have a great time. You enjoy the camaraderie with your uh, fellow teammates. And of course, in my situation, I had an opportunity when, you know, you go to a black college, uh, I was very fortunate and I've had an opportunity to um, go to school with my wife and, uh, We've been together since. She's your best coach. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, what is your most indelible memory or your favorite story from your collegiate career? I guess the, 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 the joy in seeing one of my coaches um, um, just be happy for our, our football team. We had an opportunity to play um, – in a, a school called Prairie View University right. out of Texas. And I made a catch. And, you know, I was relatively naive when I was playing college football because I just walked out there on the advice of a coach, not really wanting to play, but because he recognized my talent, I went out and I just, I was playing, had no knowledge of the game, just running passes and running by guys. But I made a catch to win the game. And I literally saw my coach jump up and down and get on the ground and kind of wallow in the dirt because I made the catch to win the football game. And that was really a joy to me. And that was just one of them. But I guess to have an opportunity to play with my players and, um, you know, it was just a great honor because, first of all, I played with Ronnell Young, uh, Ronnell Young, and also played with the Elba Files who um, played at Alcorn State University also. And then after our college years, we get a chance to play together. That's a very unique experience. With the, in Philadelphia with Ronell, right? Yes, yes. Hey, Jimmy, I got a little, Jimmy, I got a little list I want to run past you quickly. Uh, okay. Jimmy, here's the list. Patrick Mahomes, uh, Deshaun Watson, Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, Teddy Bridgewater, Russell Wilson, Jimmy, what do they have in common? Black quarterbacks, all of them outstanding. And James, I'll take you back to 1978. Doug Williams' rookie season in Tampa. I looked it up, Jimmy. Looked it up and you already knew it. The only black starting quarterback in the National Football League that season. Because Shaq Harris, uh, his career was winding down with the Chargers. Right. And Jimmy, take us back to 78 and, and the kind of things that Doug Williams persevered through. And what was it like being a teammate with all eyes on Doug Williams at that time? Well, Ira, I, I would like to say that <clears throat> Doug Williams is just, well, all these guys that have, that have come after him, they're really just antithesis of what Doug was at the time but not having the opportunity to perform. Doug had the mentality, he had the ability, he had the smarts, he had the athletic ability, he had the arm to do anything. 
And that's one of the reasons Coach Gibbs chose to stay on Coach McKay to draft him, which he ultimately did. But once they drafted him, there was a lot of hesitancy into as far as releasing him to the ball club and letting him have the ability to, to make calls on the football field. Now, being a quarterback, being a quarterback that had won championships and had all types of accolades, when we got in crunch situations, his athletic and ability and his mentality took over, and he made calls regardless. And most great quarterbacks do that anyway. I, I had the opportunity to play with Joe Ferguson in, in uh, Detroit, and I've seen him do it. Um, Joe Ferguson was a great Buffalo Bills quarterback. Um, but when the game is on the line and we were not coached to change plays, or at least Doug was not coached. But, man, when your game is on the line, we're in the heat of the battle. His ability took, so, took over, and that's what he did. He made those plays. Now these guys are coached to do that because they recognize that they have the ability to make the plays, to lead a ball club, and lead men. And that's what's most important. They have the ability to lead men, period. Do all these guys owe a debt to Doug Williams, uh, Jimmy? Without a doubt. Without a doubt, Ira. That's a great response. And, and I'll give you a good example. When I first went to Philadelphia, Coach Buddy Ryan, and I got to say this, man, and because it came from every one of the players that I played with, they said, Jimmy Giles, Buddy Ryan loves Jimmy Giles. <laughs> When I first went to Philadelphia, Coach Ryan, he put me right in the offense and said, I want you to learn how to call plays because they had a system. I'd never seen anything like that where the tight end and, you know, we're supposed to be some of the smart guys on the football field as well. But we we took the plays from the sideline. Quarterback did other things. And that just didn't sit well with me. So. One evening, I went to Randall, I surrendered. They don't pay me to do this. We need to sit down and get you acclimated to those plays that they're calling. And in about a week, Randall was, was taking the signals himself. And then the other thing I asked him to do, after the season, I said, man, you need to go spend a week with Doug Williams and just let him know what this life is about, what being a quarterback in the National Football League is about. And he actually did that. He went to Zachary, Louisiana, and spent about a week with Doug. And after that um, opportunity that he had to spend with Doug, Randall Cunningham was a much changed and much different quarterback. So every one of those guys owe a debt of gratitude to Doug because he changed the way the league and the nation, as a matter of fact, saw black quarterbacks in this, in this league. Jimmy, I'm glad you mentioned Randall Cunningham because I, I've always been a advocate for him and trying to move him forward in terms of Hall of Fame conversations. And he really doesn't seem to get any traction. I'm not sure why, because you hear some of the quarterbacks that Ira mentioned and people say, we've never seen this before. And I say, yeah, we, we did. We did see it before. I mean, we saw Randall Cunningham and we just, we can go from there, but we saw Randall Cunningham. He was a great quarterback. Why, in your mind, doesn't he get more attention in terms of the honors post-career? He was a great quarterback for a very good team. Is it the fact that he didn't go to the Super Bowl? Um, what is it? I'm just wondering if you're perplexed or as perplexed as I. Well, actually, I am because I think when most of the time people look at quarterbacks and, and a lot of athletes in, a, in, in general – they look at what they accomplish on the football field. However, in this particular sport, man, it takes 22 guys to be hitting on all cylinders in addition to the coaching staff. And now what that means is that every guy has to play and perform extremely well every given Sunday to maximize his team's ability to get to the Super Bowl. Secondly, if you don't get to the um, – Hall of Fame, I'm sorry, if you don't get to the Super Bowl, which is the ultimate game in sports, then you are looked upon as not having the ability to lead your team, which that is not true all the time. I think people criticize guys like Charles Barkley not being in the conversation of being a great athlete 
or, or great talent and compare him with the Jordans and the Kobe Bryant simply because he never won a championship. Yeah. Correct. But that's absolutely not true. And some guys win championships and have an opportunity to get in and they might be marginal compared to a guy like Randall Cunningham, which Randall had the ability to change the game at any particular second uh, by his running, his passing, and his ability to, you know, escape tackles. We had one of the greatest plays in, in the history of the National Football League. Um, but I knew Randall, and it wasn't um, something that just happened. It's a drill that we work on every day or maybe once or twice a week because we knew his ability to get away from tacklers, and you had to be ready to catch the football at any given time. I'm glad but you mentioned why it. why they have him considered, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about that. That was a great play, but few people remember you were on the receiving play, part of that play because he escaped. I think it was LT, wasn't it? But um, he throws the ball in the end zone, and you catch the ball. And, and I want to direct the conversation to you because, in, in my mind, you were a true tight end. You could block, you could catch, and you could run. How do you think – you would fare in today's game where tight ends sometimes catch 80, 90, and even 100 balls in a season. How do you think Jimmy Giles would fare in today's game? Man, I tell you what, I probably wouldn't have played 13 years because of the way I played. But one of the things you have to believe, you have to really pride yourself in that because I really prided myself in blocking for Ricky Bell, James Wilder, and Jerry Eggwood, and then guys like Keith Byers when I had a chance to play with uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, it's just something you have to take pride in. Um, but man, I would have loved to have the opportunity um, to, to play in a system where I caught 60, 65 passes during the course of a year. Um, and these guys don't know how lucky it is because they are when they're in that system. But I, I, anytime I have an opportunity to meet these guys, especially when they're younger, I tell them, man, enjoy every moment of playing in the National Football League because it's a tremendous honor, first of all. And it's something that once you're out of it, it's gone. And you'll always remember um, what you didn't do because you thought you could have done it better. And I look back in my course of my um, uh, career, and I just can imagine having caught one more pass per game, it wouldn't be any doubt in having the opportunity to become a, a Hall of Famer. And, you know, we have, my daughter is, has spearheaded along with uh, Ira, um, me trying to be recognized for the Hall of Fame. But we've had an opportunity to have over 30 uh, elite Hall of Famers um, that have spoken on my behalf. And man, goes back to my quarterback and Doug Williams and Steve DeBerg. Um, you know, they had the opportunity to, to have made uh, those decisions to throw me one more ball, they would have. And John McKay liked to run the football, uh, Jimmy. He that's was just going the way it was. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy, talk a little bit, um, you know, for our listeners, and, and I don't think this story gets played enough, but, and I don't think you're unique in this respect, Jimmy, the toll, the toll that this game exacts on every player uh, over the years, and it may not show up for 10 years after you retire. And, and Jimmy, uh, just talk about the physical toll pro football takes on, on the human body. Wow. Not only on the body, Ira, it, it, it affects your mind as well. Um, and that's one of the things when we first re retired, when, and I say we, I'm talking about the guys that played with me during that era. I used to ask the guys, I said, man, you got to have um, the, the fortitude to at least go to the doctor two to three times a year just to keep a chart of where you are mentally and physically. And it makes a big difference in how you are going to be able to be treated in years later. Um, I just had a conversation with doctors yesterday 
because over the past 10 years, you know, I've just had constant back pain. And I've gone to doctors all over the country, uh, from here in Tampa to uh, MD Anderson to the Cleveland Clinic. And they look at my spine and they said, we can replace knees, we can replace uh, elbows, we can replace hips, but we can't replace spine. You got degenerative disc problems that we just can't do anything about because that's the nature of the business that you're in. And it's something that we have to accept. Um, would I do it again? Uh, probably would now because it was something that I enjoyed. It was something that gave me an opportunity to um, secure uh, my family financially. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a great thing to be recognized by your fans afterwards. Um, but, but you paid a price, this, Jimmy. You paid a price. Yeah, but I probably price. wouldn't have played as long as I, yeah. I did or if I really hadn't known. But something that you really enjoy doing. Because I think it, if you really look at it, most men, if you give them an opportunity, and now in some cases women, if you give them an opportunity, they'll play. Yeah, right. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Hey, Jimmy, I've got one last one. Um, you always said you wanted to be the best tight end in the game. What do you think your legacy is? Most of all, consistency, um, Clark. I think um, when you look at what I tried to do, I tried to do the same thing every single day, every practice, every game. And in fact, we, were, we had a conversation yesterday. Our, we were at a whole memorial plan and uh, some, a couple of my former teammates. And the guy said, man, one of the things that I remembered about you is that every time you call a pass, and you know, when, you, when we practice on a team effort, we start at the 60, at the 40 yard line in practice at the middle of the field, but we're on the 40 yard line to give us a good uh, concept of, of where we're gonna be in the game. But it was a, if it was a five yard out, I ran 60 yards and scored the touchdown. Uh, even if guys was around me, you know, I want to feel that I could take the ball all the way. But that was just something I got accustomed to. And a lot of times you get in the game, you break a tackle and you're gone. Today, if you look at a lot of the players now, they are catch the ball and they don't make the effort to get away to try to score the football. But that's just being creatures of habit. You know, you are what you practice. And in that case, you know, I've seen a lot of times, I'm not saying all of them, because I tell you another guy was like that, Roger Craig, and yeah. of course, Earl Campbell. They were two guys that, that practiced like that. In fact, we used to talk about that when we played. And uh, it was a result of just doing something repeatedly over and over and being mindful that, you know, you could break a tackle at any time and score and hopefully win for your football team. Yeah, don't get me started on Roger Craig, Jimmy. I've been trying to oh, get him in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> I don't understand oh, why yeah. he's not in. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Giles, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Love listening to you. And again, congratulations on being named to the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Clark, it's thanks a, a, lot. It's a, thanks it's a, a lot, pleasure. Jerry. It's a pleasure. Um, and Ira, I, I thank you guys for having me on. And um, look forward to uh, the Bucks finishing up 10 and 6 here and having a great year and going on to the Super Bowl. Wait a minute, 10 and 6. You think they're going to lose another game, Jimmy, right? Whoa. Well, <laughs> maybe one more. Maybe one more. It's, you know, you got to you gotta allow for something to submit that. I'll tell you <laughs> something. If you guys got a second here, I'll tell you yeah. something. And Ira and I was talking about it the other day. Everybody's getting on coach about getting on Tom Brady. Right? Right. You ever thought, Ira, that coach might be doing that for a reason? Yep. Yep. He's yep. taking yep. the heat off of Tom Brady because if he didn't take the heat, they would go after Tom Brady. And he's the kind of coach he's going to get on with whoever to make his team better. And if everybody sees that coach can get on Tom Brady, that means if you don't do your job, he's going to get on you too. Yeah, but he's taking not. the heat off Tom and putting it on himself. Parcells used to do that too. Parcells Absolutely. did it. Yep, Absolutely. he did. 
And how many Super Bowls did he have? <laughs> Couple of them. Thank, thanks again, Jimmy. As a matter All of right, fact, yeah. Jimmy, do you remember in the uh, 2000 Super Bowl when the Ravens were playing the Giants? And there was all this talk about Ray Lewis, you know, and Brian Billick put the heat on himself because he said, I don't want anyone talking about this. He put the heat on himself. So all the attention went to Brian Billick and they didn't talk about um, Ray. And then I go back to the 85 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 20, the Bears, that right. Jim McMahon was doing all this stuff off the field. And I was the, actually the uh, neutral reporter. I was at, at the Bears site every day and um, and he was doing things that were outlandish. He became the story. And it turns out later, he said, I was doing it for a reason. Took the heat off of everybody else. Of course, as we know, they didn't need to take the heat off of anyone because they won in a, in a, in a laugher. But, but that's, right. I can see what you're saying. But instead, in today's society, we don't just crack down on Tom Brady. We crack down on Bruce Arians and Tom Brady. Let's get them all. You know? yeah. <laughs> but that's a mark of a good coach knows exactly what he's doing, taking the heat off his team and putting it on himself. Jimmy, thanks so much. Great talking to you. Thank you. All right, Carl. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Jim. All right. Um, he brought up some good points. I mean, uh, Jimmy Giles was a terrific tight end. And I know you feel very strongly that he should get Hall of Fame consideration. You want to just tell me quickly why? Because I I, I mean, I've, I've looked at Jimmy uh, Giles resume, but I don't know him as well as you do. And I know you're an outstanding and uh, outspoken supporter, Jimmy. I am. I'm an advocate for Jimmy Giles. Uh, Clark, I think the thing that people have to realize is he was a big man but he could really move. Yeah. And his average yards, he wasn't catching little seven yarders. Uh, you know, he, he, he caught some 80 yarders and very few tight ends, you know, in, in the um, early 80s were doing things like that. Right. And he played for John McKay and Clark, you know, John McKay enough to know sweep right, sweep left, you know, at USC <laughs> had all the great tailbacks. And when he came to Tampa, Clark in 76, he never changed his philosophy. Yeah. Even with a strong arm like Doug Williams, it was Ricky Bell left and right. And that that really diminished the numbers for Jimmy Giles. It did. As, I, as I've always said, what I remember most about John McKay, of course, was the futility of the Bucks end. But when he was asked about, what do you think of your team's execution? And he said, I'm in favor of it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I do. Yeah. At least I do. That's the cue for our weekly I Was There segment. And Ira, listening to that response, it, it must be my turn, right? Are they cheering for me? Is it? it? It's all you, baby. Take us back. Okay. Take us back in the time warp. Okay, I am. I'm going back to the time machine. I, I'm way back machine. I'm going back to October 2011 when the San Francisco 49ers went to Detroit to play the Lions, the then undefeated Detroit Lions. So it shows you how far back that was. The 49ers won 25 to 19, and they went five and one for the first time since 98. I was covering them in 98, and they went to the uh, playoffs again that year. They got beaten in the divisional round. But anyway, it was the first time in a long time for them. But that wasn't the story. This was after the game, immediately after the game, Jim Harbaugh, who was then in his first year as head coach for the 49ers, jumps up and down like a kid at a high school football game, slapping people on the back, runs to the center of the field, and there's Jim Schwartz, then the head coach of the Detroit Lions, who extends his hand, and Harbaugh slaps him on the uh, hand, and then as he's leaving, hits him on the back so hard, it looked like a Heimlich maneuver for a guy who was choking on a hot dog. <laughs> and then he runs off the field. And Schwartz looks at him and goes, wait, what? And according to Schwartz, and I think you know in Jim Harbaugh, it's plausible, he said he said an obscenity. Well, Went to congratulate uh, Coach Harbaugh and got shoved out of the way, and then um, didn't expect a um, didn't expect an obscenity at that point. So um, it, was, it was a surprise to me at the end of the game. Went to shake an opponent's uh, coach's hand, and uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you win a game like that, you're excited and things like that. But I think there's a protocol that goes with this league. Uh, Jim Harbaugh, yeah plausible right so he runs off the field and Schwartz said wait what so Schwartz chases him and the the teams are going off through a, a tunnel they're both going off through the same tunnel Harbaugh's in the scrum outside of the scrum is Schwartz screaming yelling and he's trying to get at him and if he could get at him I swear to god there was going to be a physical confrontation now the players realized it the PR directors realized that they're trying to separate these two and Harbaugh's just walking off blissfully knowing full well what he's done and seeing out of the corner of his eye to the left, there's this insane coach trying to get at him. 
And, and the players now are putting their helmets back on because they think <laughs> there's something that's going to be bad going on. And I was in the locker room in the 49ers uh, locker room and moved out of there to the uh, press room and waiting for Harbaugh. And I thought, oh my God, what's this going to be like? He comes in as if nothing happened. And he says, eh, you know, that's on me. Uh, handshake was probably too hard, which was like a veiled shot at, at uh, Jim Schwartz. Schwartz was not happy. He really wasn't. Uh, and afterwards, I remember he said, yeah, there was an obscenity there. And there's a protocol that goes with this league. This guy didn't follow. Well, I don't know if there was a protocol, but it sort of set the stage for what was to come with Jim Harbaugh. And remember, this wasn't as if it was his first confrontation. I don't know if you remember back at USC when uh, uh, Pete Carroll was there and Harbaugh was at Stanford. And, and I think it was after Stanford had really beaten them badly, which was unusual. But after the game, he says something to, to Carol. And Carol, what's your deal? I mean, there was a confrontation there. Couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, Harbaugh later said, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said what I said. Oh, we'll, we'll be friends. But it wasn't the first and probably uh, wasn't the last. I, I haven't followed him much since he's been at Michigan. But I'll tell you what, I, I remember that well because it was a, a scene that I really hadn't seen before. Maybe handshakes today? We don't have handshakes, right, because of COVID? <laughs> that was a good reason not to have handshakes. Plus... I was one of the last times anything meaningful happened at Detroit's. <laughs> Clark, if that throwdown ever happened, I, I got Schwartz as a I, two to five favorite. I got Schwartz, Schwartz is my favorite because something tells me looking at Jim Schwartz, you know, even on a good day, the guy's ornery. And uh, <laughs> I, I think I think he would have got Harbor in a headlock and gave him some noogies. If you, if you had three pins, he would have pinned him three out of three times. Yeah, <laughs> Schwartz would have won that one. Uh, Ira, you got any final thoughts? Yeah, just quickly, Clark. Uh, there's a team out there that's um, on a serious roll, and uh, they're not getting enough publicity. I mean, the whatever Jets? the Bucks. You talking about the Jets? Nah, Clark. You know, whatever <laughs> the Bucks do, they they they're the focus. They're the focus, and you know, they be, they lose to the Chiefs, and they're yep. the focus. They lose to the Rams, they're still the focus. Yep. Wait a minute, Clark. There's another team in that division, the New Orleans Saints, yep. that look like they're Super Bowl bound. They really yep. do. And I think Sean Payton has done a fantastic job um, in the Big Easy. Clark, Michael Thomas, the reigning offensive player of the year, he hasn't caught a touchdown pass. He hasn't oh. caught a touchdown pass. Not one. Um, they run the football 50-50. Nobody does that in this league. They got two backs. They run it. And they got the NFL's number one defense. Clark, who would have thought? Total defense, the Saints. So hats off to what's going on in the Crescent City, Clark. Okay, I read two things about that. One is you can be the number one defense when you play an opponent like the Denver Broncos who start a wide receiver <laughs> at quarterback, right? I don't know what they have for total yardage, but they completed one pass. However, that doesn't negate the fact that they're playing very well defensively. I think they haven't allowed a 100-yard rusher something like 53 or 54 consecutive games. And that's astounding. People talk about their offense. They've got a defense, and that is what makes them dangerous. And then secondly, the head coach, Sean Payton, last two years with Drew Brees, they're 7-0, and 5-0 with Teddy Bridgewater, 2-0 with Taysom Hill. So people say, well, Drew Brees, Drew Brees. Well, no, he's won without Drew Brees. So that does make them dangerous. All I know, though, about New Orleans is if they get to the Super Bowl, it's about time. I mean, every year there's some kind of spectacular – astounding finish that leaves them behind. It just doesn't make any sense. So I'm sort of waiting for that shoe to drop this this uh, this year. Anyway, that's going to do it. All right, tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter. At iKaufman76, Mr. Judge. Ian, how about you? It's at I-G-L-E-N-31. Okay, and I'm at Clark Judge T-O-F. We don't hear from you then? Well, then you can hear from us next week right here at the eye test for two on fullpressradio.com. Thanks for listening.